Welcome to Aiming for the Moon. I am Taylor Bledsoe. And I'm Maddie Henry. And on this podcast, we're interviewing interesting people from a teenage perspective. That's right. And today we will be interviewing Gary Rivlin, who's a journalist and among other rewards, has won a shared Pulitzer Prize for his work on the Panama Papers. So here's the interview. Welcome, Mr. Rivlin. Um, so you are an investigative journalist who, for the past decade or even more than that, I'm sure. Many decades. Has, what did you say? Many decades. <laughs> yes, sir. Has been working as an investigative journalist on the New York Times, Wired, Newsweek, and many other ones. So you've one of your most famous books is Katrina After the Flood, and you've done a lot of work in other in any uh, in a lot of other books and stuff. So could you please just tell our listeners what's the difference between investigative journalism and normal journalism? Right, that's a good question. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, most journalism should be in quotes investigative journalism, in-depth journalism. So the cliche about journalists, daily news newspaper reporters, is they're stenographers. One side says one thing. The other side says something else, and then you just shrug and like, okay, you make up your own mind. To me, journalism, or you could call it investigative journalism, says, okay, one side makes this set of claims, the other side makes that set of claims. Let's see if we can help sort it out. Maybe we can't give you the definitive answer. There's some things that are more moral questions, values questions, but at least we could bring facts, context, perspective into it. You know, a, a different definition, I think a more narrow definition of investigative journalists is more looking into dirt, corruption, uncovering more the shadier side of government practices or business practices. So you can look at it that way uh, too. Yes, sir. So that seems basically like it's journalism, but just more on corruption. Is that well, like I said, yeah, yes, um, kind of the, the very narrow, traditional investigative journalist, typically what they're writing about is, doesn't, doesn't have to be government corruption, you know, a, a big business is dumping chemicals illegally. I mean, you know, it, it could be corruption of uh, any kind. Someone in a nonprofit is pocketing money meant to help uh, people. But, you know, to, to me, investigative journalism is, is, is more than that. Like, you know, whatever the issue is, you know, can we dig a little bit deeper and go beyond what the elected officials or the CEO says and get closer to what the truth uh, really is? It's, it's harder, but again, you know, to me, journalism is investigative uh, journalism. It's just the way I've always, always practiced is whether for a daily newspaper like the New York Times, as a magazine writer, or what I consider myself first and foremost as a book writer. I'm always doing investigative, in-depth reporting uh, for my books. Yes, sir. So that actually makes a lot of sense. So you guys are the Sherlock Holmes of journalism. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so your most famous book, and the one that you said yourself is probably your best well-written, is Katrina After the Flood. So while you were researching for that over the 10 years that you did that, what was something that surprised you that you learned and that you found very interesting? Well, a, a lot of things. So just for the context, I was working for the New York Times, in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast. 
not quite Arkansas, but, you know, Mississippi and New Orleans and Southern Louisiana. And, you know, it was a disaster. I mean, the, the, um, the levee system uh, broke in 80%. 80% of New Orleans was underwater. And so the newspaper moved me there uh, to cover it. And I, I, you know, within, I was there within 10 days and I started talking with people whose houses were flooded. And I want to, you know, could they rebuild? Should they rebuild? Would anyone help them rebuild? So there's some families, some people I, I followed over a 10 year period. But as far as the surprise, okay, number one, we heard it was, um, uh, you know, hurricanes uh, don't discriminate. Black, white, rich, poor, doesn't make a difference. You were hit. Well, not quite. If you were a black homeowner, you were more than three times more likely to lose your home because hurricanes don't discriminate, but the stuff that went on before that was discrimination. So the high ground, the preferable places to live in New Orleans, they had rules against black homeowners buying in that neighborhood. So African-Americans had to go to the less desirable neighborhoods, which were lower lying, which ended up getting um, flooded. And you know, we saw that play out every step of the way. So you, you'd be reimbursed uh, based on the cost of your house. So the insurance would pay, and there was a government program, uh, the road home program, that would make up the difference up to $150,000. So if your house was $300,000, got $150,000 from insurance, the government would give you $150,000 extra. But truth is, a contractor costs what a contractor costs, a roof costs what a roof costs. So a house in one neighborhood, the same three-bedroom, two-bath house, you know, in a black neighborhood was appraised at $150,000. So they got $150,000 from insurance, and that's all they got. Um, the same house, white neighborhood, got 300,000, 150 from the insurance company, 150 from the government, and yet the price of rebuilding both houses were the same. So it was baked into the policy, baked into the history of the place. There was a lot of discrimination. That, that's largely what the book uh, is about. It's about you know, a group of individuals, black, white, choosing you know, what to do about New Orleans. There's not all, a happy ending with all of them. Not all of them end up moving back, but really it's about the kind of policies, racial discriminatory policies, I think we see all over the country, just there's a hurricane and just a more interesting place to look at that set of questions. So basically what surprised you was the fact that it wasn't, it was less of the hurricane that was hurting as it was the policies that came before the hurricane that was hurting in the rebuilding. That right, right, right. That, that, you know, the policies weren't there as a way to help anyone regardless of their, their, their race or economic situation, that there was all this racial bias all along the way, whether it was kind of historically and you know, making it so African-Americans were forced to live in lower ground below sea level, so their homes flooded a greater percentage. Uh, or you know, th that same kind of discrimination continued through policies, whether officials meant to or not, the bottom, that was the bottom line. That that's um, that's really interesting and not and not good for for modern society. Well, I so, think wait, but I, I think we're finally starting to come to terms in the last month or two. The upside to me of you know George Floyd and 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 the, the protests is like at least we're starting to talk about these kind of issues. It used to be just kind of people off on the side, or maybe well-meaning journalists like me uh, wrote about it. But you know now it's part of the national discussion, like, boy, the, there's been these policies, we, we, we need to do better. We need to really look at what's going on and, and come up with better policies so they don't discriminate, just treat everyone the same way regardless of, 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 of skin. Don't be blind to skin color because there are biases. Um, but let's, 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 let's look at this and, and learn from it and move on and, and do better. 
Yes, sir. So basically, um, let's look at that. Don't just be blind. Let's look at it and make sure everything is right, not blind. Right. Okay. Yes, yeah, so that I makes that. sense. So uh, among other rewards that you've won, the one that really stuck out to me was your Pulitzer Prize that you won with several other journalists. And it was um, on the work of your Panama Papers. Could you just explain to our audience, what are the Panama Papers and what did your work within this um, big thing involve? Right, so, so it was actually a, a large group. It was, it was fascinating. There was a coalition from around the world of investigative journalists, and I was lucky enough to be invited to be a part of it. Um, a, a German magazine got, I think it was 11 million pages from a law firm in Panama, and it was all about the way they were using offshore accounts. So even if you live in the United States, you'd have an account in some foreign country, in this case, Panama, but you know, there's you know, the Cayman Islands, there's other places, and they're used to hide money so you don't have to pay taxes on it, hide money because you got it uh, in illegal ways. And so 10, 11 million pages pointing out, you know, you know, emails back and forth, how are we gonna hide the money? Vladimir Putin, I didn't write that piece, was part of it you know, leaders of countries. Uh, my piece, which I love, was um, how sports stars, mainly the big soccer, star, soccer stars uh, in Europe and South America, uh, were using these offshore accounts to hide their money. Not, not really their salaries that their teams paid them, but sort of their, their sneaker or clique deals, or, you know, the deals they got for sponsoring uh, something. And they were just like covering up millions and millions of dollars and not having to pay taxes. Like, I pay taxes. <laughs> Most of us, if we're working a job, have to pay taxes. And so, you know, it, it just came to light. This was in 2017. Again, it was more than 100 journalists. So, you know, my joke is, you know, here's my Pulitzer Prize. It's just a little sliver. I got a little piece of it. But, you know, we did, we did great work that really kind of put a spotlight on the kind of stuff that the very wealthy, the top, not even really the top 1%, the top 1% of 1%, the top 10th of a percent, uh, get to use to hide their money and, you know, kind of get this unfair advantage. The people who should be paying their fair share more than the rest of us who are struggling, they were paying nothing um, on their, because they were just hiding their money. So, so yeah, that's, that's a really bad thing. <laughs> so that's, that's great that it came to light. And that's kind of, it's like insane too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So It's still going on. I mean, you know, this one law firm in Panama stopped doing it. The country of Panama changed the laws. Uh, you know, there were changes here and there. Some individuals got in trouble. Some individuals had to pay back taxes. But who's kidding who? It's still going on. It was just in this one case, we caught, you know, this percentage of the wider world of, of the problem. But it, it also drew attention uh, to the problem, which I, I, I was proud to, to, to be a part of. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So I'm curious, you write a lot of books, obviously, and you write a lot of papers. Um, do you have any funny habits or anything that you do while you're writing that just while you're concentrating that you're just like, hmm, what, what are those if you have any? Well, you know, it, well, first off, and this, this surprises people, I guess, or other writers, I always have music playing. I, I you know, some, some writers need quiet. I go out of my, I go out of my head if it's quiet. That, this makes, makes it harder just to sit there and, you know, whenever you're doing something intense, creating, writing a report, you know, just, just whatever just takes concentration, you get tired. 
So I'll just blast the music and there's certain playlists I have that are just to pump up my energy. I have a standing desk because I hurt my shoulder. And so I'll even be dancing around a little. And the, the, the other thing, my, my wife makes brutal fun of me for this, deservedly so. <laughs> um, I, I am, when I'm writing a book, uh, I am a maniac about noting how many words I wrote each day. 1,200, 1,400, and I write it down. And then each chapter I say how long it is. And then when I go and rewrite it, then my goal is what percentage can I cut it? My goal is always to cut my words by like 15 or 20%. I've gotten up to 25%. And I calculate it. You know, like when I'm done, you know, in the draft, how many words is it now? It's this much. And I'll, you know, oh, 16.7% cut. So I, I don't know why no one ever sees the numbers. It's just for me, like, oh, I'm doing a good job because I'm cutting over 15%. It makes no sense, but I, I can't do it any other way. It's really fun. Now, music definitely, I can't focus with, um, and study or do anything without music playing. Isn't so, it funny? Some, some people are the opposite. They can't focus if there is um, music. And e even like sometimes I want no words, so I'll listen to jazz, but that's not my favorite kind of music. So even with words, how do you write when other people are singing words? I don't know. I, I just, sometimes it inspires me. Sometimes, oh, that's a very poetic line that musician wrote, and that feels inspiring. Uh, to me, but I, I always, always, always have written um, with music. Same. I I think it's awesome too. So I'm curious, what made you want to become an investigative journalist? Yeah, um, I mean it's funny because you know high school I got good grades in math and science and lousy grades in English. My math <laughs> SAT was I think like 270 points better than my English essay. But, you know, so I went to school as an engineer, but I don't know, I, I just felt like I had something to say. And when, you know, in college, they make you take electives. Uh, so I was an engineering <laughs> major and like, I love the electives. I mean, the literature course and the political science course and the history course to me were 10 times more interesting. Like, I just kind of realized like, boy, if I'm going to spend my life doing this thing, whatever this thing is, I, I think I'd rather do the thing that is easier to do, that I'm much more interested than forcing myself to understand chemistry. I, I you know, stupid me, this is, you know, 1980s, I, I, was pro, I, I was pretty good at programming a computer, but I walked away from programming computers in the early 80s to become a journalist, which financially might not have been the wisest decision, but I, I don't know. I, I still think I made the right decision despite that. Yes, that's, that's what I noticed when I was reading your bio that you did a lot of programming in high school. And I find that really fun because I actually love writing and I also program a lot. So I don't know. That's and, a good combo. Yes, sir. So speaking of um, high school and everything, what would you say, do you have any tips of the trade or whatever for aspiring journalists? Uh, tips of the trade, you know, I mean, first, Find out why you're doing it. Like for me, you know, it started with justice and fairness. I I, I hate on I, I I hate can't stand inequality. I can't stand unfair situations. And you know, it's really hard to be a, a journalist. A lot of concentration, a lot of stops and start, and how you begin the story, and you know, just you get lost in your words. You're writing six, eight, ten hours uh, a day, and it really helped that that I had this kind of bigger mission of just sort of putting a spotlight on kind of social issues on and kind of things in the system that bugging me and but you know it's funny over time though i guess i became much more of a practitioner because now the most important thing to me is to be a storyteller 
I just like telling people's stories. I like talking to you, getting you to open up, and then putting myself in your shoes and writing your uh, story. So, you know, I, I, I really think just go in with an open mind, be curious, be prepared to change your mind. You know, sometimes you walk in thinking one thing and you were wrong, and then just, you know, just, just try to be fair to the individual you're writing about. I don't know if you have to be balanced, because sometimes, like, it isn't really a balanced story, but just at least be fair to the side and give that person his or her say. You know, you might not think it's right, but just just be true to their point of view and 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 and, and portraying it, uh, even if the, in the end you take the opposite point of view. Yes, sir. That's the main thing I loved about how you wrote your book, specifically becoming an ethical hacker that I read, which is a great book, by the way. Uh, I loved how you made it like into a story, like I could put myself in these people's shoes. And you talked about how the coffee, how you would go to the cafes and how, you know, you just, just the stuff, the scenery, it was like reading a novel more than a nonfiction. Right. That's what I, that's what I really hope to do, uh, you know, especially in like some of that computer security where there's all these different positions, you know, incident response was like the firefighter. So something bad happens, you know, Angela Gunn, the character you were just referring to the cafe, she's called to like put out the fire. Why did it happen? Calm everyone um, down. You know, there's sort of penetration testing, like a big company will hire someone from the outside to just test their defenses. Do they have good defenses? That seemed a really fun job, but it's very different. A couple of the characters, uh, Parisa, if you've ever heard of the security princess, she called herself. Yes. <laughs> She, she worked for Google. She did, you know, security. She does security for um, Chrome, their, their browser. And, you know, it, it's, it's just, I wanted you in her shoes. How she ended up there? Because do you really want this job? I mean, for her, it was great. It's just a challenge. You have to think like a bad guy and you're always figuring out a puzzle, but you strike out a lot, right? You can spend days, weeks and not crack it. And, you know, you, you need to be built a certain way. So I, I really wanted to put you, I wanted everyone to put themselves in the position of this person to try out the various kinds of roles you can have uh, in the computer in the computer security world, which, by the way, is a great career to get into. They're, you know, they are predicting by the end of next year that there'll be down three million jobs. There is such a demand wow. for these reasons because everyone needs computer security, not just Google and the big you know tech companies, you know banks and retailers and you know anyone in any, any business. You know, it, it's you need basic security and you're really calling the shots if you're, you know, in the computer security. There's a, a big demand for that job as opposed to journalists. <laughs> yes, sir. When I was, I finished your book and one day it was so good. And um, I looked at, I was like, oh, wow, this, there's this many um, jobs ending by the end of next year. I was like, wait, when was this book published? I'm like, only one year ago. Yeah, this yeah, is great. Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, the demand isn't going to go uh, away. I mean, Hackers find new ways of breaking in and people on the defense side, the ethical hackers I'm writing about, you know, they're always necessary. You know, I mean, the thing that's amazing is you can have perfect defense every day for a year, but up on day 366, someone breaks into your bank, bank or your store and steals a bunch of credit cards. That's all anyone's going to pay attention uh, to. It's called the attacker's advantage. They could be attacking a thousand different ways. You could fend them off a thousand ways, but if they get in the thousandth and one, you know, you failed and stuff. So, you know, that's another thing to consider about the job. There's always demand, but there's a certain pressure uh, uh, to it. You make a mistake and, you know, you're, 
you're giving a, an in to some pretty nefarious people out there. Yes, sir. So sadly, we have only two questions left before we end this interview. And they're the ones that we ask every single guest. So, um, and because we've been talking about all of your books, I'm curious, from the books that you've read, what books have had an impact on you? So I guess early on, um, I think two of the best works of nonfiction ever, Truman Capote in Cold Blood, and Norman Mailer, The Executioner's Song. I must have read those books two or three times, just trying to, how do they do it? How do they tell it, as you said, like a novel, like a story? How do you get me so interested in these characters? In both cases, not particularly attractive uh, characters, murderers. Um, but you know, then over the years, I, I just savor great works of nonfiction, of journalism. Isabel Wilkerson's The, the Warmth of Other Sons uh, is a, uh, a great book. Uh, I started writing, you know, business reporting, you know, you know, computer business, the poverty business I wrote a book about. Because there's all these great works of nonfiction, just getting us inside and showing how the world really likes. So any of these nonfiction uh, books that just tell it like a like sort of David Halberstam, an old time journalist passed away, but you know, he wrote a series of great books, um, kind of showing us how it really works, getting, bring us behind the scenes through characters. I, I'm usually telling my stories, through individuals. So rather than, you know, an exploration of issues, you know, I'd rather have like this person stands for this point of view and that person stands for that point of view. And let's kind of see the way they live their life and the way they give the argument. So you're invested in these people rather than just trying to sort through an issue. That That's the kind of stuff I, I Robert Caro, the power broker, there's a million. In fact, I have two shelves, not, not the ones behind me, but I have two bookshelves that just sort of like favorite journalism over the years that inspired me. Uh, to become a journalist and just get better. Yes, sir. So basically, you love the stories where they took the nonfiction and wrote it like a story. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So our last and final question is, because our podcast is geared more towards teenagers, um, what advice would you give to teenagers and our listeners? You know, I, I, first off, be open. Like, I started college as an engineer then I moved to political science and I went to Northwest, one of the best journalism schools in the country, but it didn't dawn on me to become a journalist until after I left. And so, you know, I, I, I like the idea of like, I mean, a lot of people, young people seem to go into college knowing exactly what they want to do. And that's great. You know, I, my nieces and nephews, tend to, you know, they all knew what they want to do and that's what they're doing. They seem happy, but you know, that wasn't me. That's not a lot of, People. So I, I like the idea of trying out something. Like I was saying before, you spend a lot of time <laughs> at work, you know, especially kind of the work I do that I can imagine a lot of people watching this, like 50 hours, 60 hours a week, sometimes more if you're on a deadline or involved in a big project. You, you, you got to make sure you care about it, or at least there's a real luxury there if you could care about it. There's this other thing that's getting, you know, any job, no matter how perfect, there are parts of it that are boring. I mean, you know, you could be a star athlete, but like you're training five hours, whatever, a day. And so you really have to have that extra motivation that I really care about the story. I really care about this issue. I really want to put the spotlight on this unfair thing I see. That kind of, that, not kind of, that drives me when I'm tired, when I want to give up, when I'm just you know, want to quit for the day, like, that keeps me, that keeps me going. So 
if you're lucky enough to find that, it's it's just it's just a great thing um, to just have this extra motivation to you know get you through the more drudgery parts of any job. So basically, if you're going to be open-minded because you're going to spend your entire life doing that job. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I suppose, you know, many people choose wrong and then have a career shift. I didn't do that, but obviously a lot of people um, do that. So, you know, be open-minded early on and, you know, really just try to pay attention to like, what am I really interested in? What, what, what am I doing that doesn't feel like a lot of work um, to do? You know, I, I was doing well in math and science, but it felt like drudgery to me, but I love reading these political books, these history books, and that kind of kind of got me alive. I noticed I was talking about it a lot with my friends and, and, and all. Like, so I just paid attention to that. Like, well, okay, that's, that kind of gets me going a lot more than these other things. And so I moved in that direction. I, I, I really don't regret that. I, I think despite <laughs> moving away from computers and you know, <laughs> better pay, um, I think I'm a happier human. And that seems the far more important thing. Yes, sir. Well, thanks so much for coming on to our podcast. It was really awesome to have you on. Great. Thanks. My pleasure. I thought that was a very intriguing interview because I've always wondered what it's like to be a journalist and what goes through your mind as you research this stuff and find out more information and you write up all the news articles and everything that people read. Oh yeah, definitely. I would love to like have a day, like, like a day as an investigative journalist, just to see like, what are they doing? Like, I think it'd be so fun to be an investigative journalist, but what the one thing I really loved was how he followed his passion. Like he, he said he was making amazing grades in math and science, like all the arrows were pointing to becoming an engineer. Um, but he really felt like a thirst for like writing and obviously investigative journalism and it's taken him so far his i love that he has centered his career around show like shining the light on so um cases with trying to bring just truth out and to be open his books are amazing yeah they really are so his entire career, his decades worth of career is awesome. So he's had so many rewards with his writing. He's, he's won a share of Pulitzer Prize with other journalists in the Panama Papers, which is spectacularly amazing. <laughs> Along with all of his prizes, we got to learn about what he does when he writes, which I thought was awesome. That he actually listens to music and he'll dance as he writes. And I think that's awesome because I do the same thing as I study, because we're still in junior high, and we do have to study people. I was like, I, I was so happy to find somebody else that listens to music, like, while you're writing, because I do the same thing, and everybody else calls me crazy, like, how can you focus? I'm like, I cannot not focus without something playing in the background, but I, I thought it was awesome. Now we have an excuse, like, Mr. Gary Rivlin also listens to music, and look how far that's taken him. So. <laughs> Definitely. Yep. So, and the best part was his advice, how he basically talked about go and have an open mind when you go into college so that when you, when you look at all this stuff, um, you basically, you don't set yourself on a career that you're going to go down and you might change it later, which is fine, but, you know, just have an open mind when you go into college because you, who knows what you really want to do.
Definitely. It's great to go in with an open mind because sometimes you get a future goal and that's what you want to do. And then you actually go and do it. And it's 10 times different from what you thought it would be. And you want to change. And last but not least was the books that he recommended. And I'm going to let Maddie run with this one because she's in charge of all of that. Oh, yeah. So the book he recommended, In Cold Blood, I will be reading and I will be doing a Maddie's opinion on that. So that's something you can look forward to. And then remember, that'll be on our website at aimingforthemoon.com. So go and check us out. There are lots of cool things on the website and comment below and tell us what if you want us to interview someone. If you have things we you do like about our podcast or don't, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, totally. And last episode, everyone to go listen to that, obviously. Um, I told everyone that I will be, re- I've read Through the Gates of Splendor. And so, yes, I will be writing, but I'm going to call it Taylor's opinion because I'm going to totally steal that from Maddie. <laughs> and basically what Maddie does, I'm going to talk about what I liked about it, just review it, summary, and give you guys the link to where you can find out more about it and where you can buy it. So, yeah. So guys, please keep listening because in the future, we are going to be interviewing a whole bunch more people that are going to be also very interesting and awesome. But before we leave, I just wanted to give you a plug to our last episode, which is by far the biggest episode that we've done so far. Um, Mr. Zach Johnson, the PGA golfer who's won the Masters and the British Open, agreed to let us interview him and... It's, it's an awesome episode, so go check out our last episode, and yeah, don't forget, set your sights high, and aim for the moon.